Why doesn't God seem to speak to people anymore as he did to Abraham? In parts of the Old Testament, he seemingly couldn't keep his mouth shut. He seemed to speak to Moses almost every day, but nobody hears a peep from him today, or if they do, we think they need psychiatric help. Did that in itself ever make you wonder whether those old stories might not be true? And I think it's better than the way it's being run. Hello, welcome to In Layman's Terms. This is Matthew Garnett. We're skipping our normal opening introduction because we've got just tons to get to. Get to. Going to start picking through Richard Dawkins' new book, Outgrowing God. A, God, uh, a book specifically geared toward teenagers and converting them to atheism. Pretty interesting stuff going on here. But before we get to all of that, uh, let me remind you to go to laymanstermsradio.com. Right off the top here, just want to remind you to go to laymanstermsradio.com and um, laymanstermsradio.org and donate to the Kenya Well Project. Five, ten, or fifteen dollars uh, for our Kenya Well Project. Um, if we do that, everyone who listens to the to the podcast, if we did that for a month, maybe two, we'd have this thing covered. All we got to raise is thirty thousand dollars. It's very simple. We're not a huge podcast, but we've got enough people listening that if everybody did that, we'd have this thing covered quite easily. And uh, the other way you can donate as well is a one-time $50 donation to our GoFundMe. So you can go also to laymanstermsradio.org, click on our GoFundMe, and we can get this this well funded. I, I, I talk about it every week about how important this is that we get it done. We're going to plug away at it. We're going to chip away at it, and we're going to try to make it happen. Um, that's, uh, that's something that... Uh, makes me feel good about me, <laughs> in a sense, about doing this podcast. Because I'm not trying to do this to to get famous, which is is kind of my nature. I have to to fight that temptation, and I thought, what what a better way to fight that temptation uh, of trying to get famous than than trying to get this uh, get this thing uh, funded in a way, or, or anybody that might want to give me money just funnel that to something that's much more worthwhile than me because I make plenty of money. I live like a king here in America. No problems at all. No worries really at all compared to these poor children who have to go to rivers and streams in Kenya to gather water so they can get through a school day. That's that's nonsense. That shouldn't be going on. So we, uh, we hope that you will give to the Kenya Well Project uh, in that way. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much sacrifice, and that's how we set it up. And and um, th- the money's coming in. The money's coming in. So we hope you'll be a part of that. Also, welcome to everyone listening on KNNA The Cross in Nebraska. Uh, thank you to Steve Kozar for including us there. Plenty of resources. Um, I do the apologetic stuff, the postmodern stuff, the atheist stuff. That's kind of my gig there. But there's plenty of resources. Really, the, the thrust of that um, is is just really exploring North American Christianity and trying to ferret out the fakes and, and warn you about them. And that's a, that's a great resource for you. So check out the messed up church dot com. Also, welcome to everyone listening in Nebraska on KNNA The Cross. Thank you to Pastor Poppy and everyone who has included us there. We're really very proud to be a part of KNNA The Cross in Nebraska. So if you're listening on KNNA The Cross or their or their app, uh, welcome aboard. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. Okay, we've got a lot to get to. I don't want to really gild the lily at all here. We've got Richard Dawkins pretty much at his worst. Sometimes I think that Richard Dawkins is actually a, a theist, maybe even a Christian, uh, because everything he puts out is so, in my estimation, utterly ridiculous and not very well thought through that I, I just don't, simply don't see how anybody could 
could be convinced by it, who is who is spending any amount of time thinking about these things. But obviously people are and uh, are attracted to his arguments, but we're going to start to pick them apart. Hopefully, uh, you, you know, I, I could see how maybe it may be a teenager, maybe a completely uninformed teenager who would even be thinking about these things might be convinced by these arguments because they just have no other point of reference. But we're going to just start picking through this. We might spend a couple weeks on it. We might spend three weeks on it. Just depends on when I get sick of uh, just completely because you could just the opening chapters. I just picked one and just started going through it. And that's basically what we're going to do today and get as far as we can and show you that um, the way Richard Dawkins approaches this is really no better than than any fundamentalist Christian who says, well, because God says so, um, you know, and we, God doesn't need a defense and these sorts of things that uh, some fundamentalist Christians tend to say when it comes to defending Christianity. So um, that's what we're going to uh, deal with it, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's so obvious uh, where Dawkins is going with this, how he treats it. Um, he doesn't treat it with any any amount of seriousness whatsoever. He hasn't studied the major scholars in, on Christianity. He just takes the it's a complete straw man. That's what the new atheism is, and that's what that's what we've always said, and that's what it continues to be. They take the worst arguments possible, and you know proceed to dismantle those those terrible arguments and pretend like they've won some grand victory uh, over the arguments that Christianity wants to put forth. Okay, we're going to get to it right now, so here we go. I won't spend long on the Old Testament. It takes us further into the shadowy realms of myth and legend, and biblical scholars don't take it seriously as history. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are called the Pentateuch by Christians and the Torah by Jews. Moses is traditionally supposed to have written them, but no serious scholar thinks he did. As with the stories of Robin Hood and his merry men, or King Arthur and his knights of the round table, there may be some obscure fragments of truth buried in the Pentateuch, but there's nothing you could call real history. The stories of Adam and Eve and of Noah and his ark are not history, and no educated theologian thinks they are. All right, so beware the atheist that tells you that no serious scholar... No educated person believes any of this. Um, I am surrounded at my church by educated people. Uh, several of the folks that go to my church are people who have moved here from across the country who are very well educated, who have master's degrees, PhDs, who teach seminary, and they believe that the story of Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, etc. are genuine history. And this is what they teach in the seminaries. And so for Richard Dawkins to say this is just, it, it's, that's completely false. Um, what atheists and their ilk tend to mean by no serious scholar really believes that the Adam and Eve story is history is they, what they mean by that is that no scholar who is not a Christian believes that this is history. That's true. That's basically true. But he doesn't qualify that, does he? The overwhelming majority of scholars who uh, study this stuff, teach this stuff, teach Adam and Eve as history. Because if you don't teach Adam and Eve as history, as we pointed out in earlier podcasts, you've got a problem. Because if, if Adam is not an historical figure, then you've got a real problem bridging the gap from that to Christ being an historical figure in any real sense of how Holy Scripture puts it. And so... The overwhelming majority of, of the scholars that I know of teach that Adam was an historical figure. 
But what's he talking about? He's talking about atheist, atheistic or naturalistic or agnostic scholars who maybe study history or study ancient texts, etc. And by the way, the Bible is the greatest source of ancient literature that we have. Um, and so it has to be studied. And so people who don't, aren't even believers study this thing. And of course, they're not going to uh, come to the conclusion that the, the, the account of Adam and Eve are, is history. They're not going to come to that conclusion. They're going, to, they're going to say that it's myth for various reasons. But for Dawkins to sit there and say the overwhelming, uh, for Richard Dawkins to say that no serious scholar or no, no one who studies this believes that Adam and Eve or Noah or anything else are historical is just complete, uh, completely cutting out all of the Christians who study this. And even some of the non-Christians, there are some, <laughs> believe it or not, very few, I will grant you, but th this cuts out the overwhelming majority of the people who care about this. So beware when that's said. Uh, it's completely misleading. Uh, and, and for him to say that no educated person believes that Adam and Eve were historical figures, well, um, I, I am an educated person. I've got, you know, quite a bit of school under my belt. Um, you know, master's degree level stuff edging into the PhD level. I've got two very good friends at church who are who have master's degrees. All three of us believe that Adam and Eve were historical figures. Um, everybody in my church, all of the people with doctorates who teach at our local seminary here, believe that Adam and Eve were historical figures. We were educated people, and we believe this. So um, the reasons, the defense for Adam and Eve being historical figures um, is, is another issue. But to say that no educated person believes this is just, that's false. It's a patent lie. And this is pretty much the tact that Dawkins follows throughout his book. Much more authentic than the alleged captivity of the Jews in Egypt is their later captivity in Babylon. There's plenty of evidence for that. In 605 BC, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem and carried off many of the Jews. About 60 years later, Babylon itself was conquered by the Persian king Cyrus the Great. Cyrus permitted the Jews to return home, which some of them did. It was during or around the time of the Babylonian exile that most of the Old Testament books were written. So if you thought the stories of Moses or David, Noah or Adam were written by people with up-to-date knowledge of what allegedly happened, think again. Okay, so, um, plenty of evidence. That's, again, another uh, ploy. We're kind of pointing, this is like the, the straw man par excellence from Dawkins here. Uh, and we're just going to kind of try to dice this up and show you where he strawmans things um, in various ways. Because that's that's basically all he's got in this entire book. Just strawman straw the Christian position or the religious position, whatever the case may be, and go forth with your, uh, with your thesis. So one way he strawmans a religious position, especially the Christian position, is he said, no, no educated person believes this, that, or the other thing. Well, we've already shown that's completely false. And any thinking person is going to know that plenty of educated people, plenty of educated theologians will subscribe to a, an, histor an historical Adam and Eve for very, for particularly the, uh, uh, a theological reason. Because if there's no historical Adam, there's no historical Christ. Okay, we've talked about that before. Now, this plenty of evidence thing, like what? So here's here's the thing that I, I found just 
that have just blown my mind, has been completely astonishing when I study ancient history, is when people say plenty of evidence. Um, there, there's never plenty of evidence for anything. If there's plenty of evidence for something, it's, it's for something that happened in the Bible. There's generally speaking plenty of evidence. In fact, archaeologists use the Bible to try to do digs in certain places. They say, well, the Bible says that this went on here, so let's try to do a dig here. And lo, lo and behold, a lot of times they find that what the Bible says happened there happened there. Now, that doesn't always happen, but sometimes where the Bible says something happened, the markers for the geography might have been different or whatever else, and they don't find what they're looking for. That happens too. But the number one guide for archaeologists is the Bible. That's one of the most reliable sources for archaeology. They, they've had the best luck finding archaeological evidence that gives us a window into the ancient past from the Bible. That's just, that's just the facts. So when Dawkins says plenty of evidence, um, then anytime somebody says plenty of evidence for da-da-da-da-da that happened in ancient history, you always have to say, like what? Show me your plenty of evidence that, um, you know, that the Israelites were, were drawn into captivity. Now we have the scriptures, of course. We're gonna, we're going to point to that, and we're going to say that's evidence, and there there might be some other evidence. But anytime somebody, my point here is that any anytime somebody doesn't uh, cite their evidence, always be suspicious. Always be suspicious of what's going on here. Okay, plenty of evidence. Ah, that's great. We've got plenty of evidence for an ancient event. That's for somebody who studied ancient history. That's really exciting. Plenty of evidence. Show me your plenty of evidence. That's what we want to see. Okay, it reminds me of a discussion I had with an atheist friend over over Caesar Augustus, and um, you know, I said, well, there's more evidence that Jesus existed than Caesar Augustus. And he's, he came back and said, oh, no, there's inscriptions on stones and on coins and everything else. And I'm going, um, yeah, we have ancient manuscripts that have that mention Jesus. Uh, oh, well, yeah, but we have coins and stuff written in stone. So what's the difference between writing in stone and writing on coins and writing on parchment? Uh, there is no difference between those things. See, um, uh, the evidence that, that the Jewish history was genuine is is more uh, abundant than the fact abundant than the fact of their Babylonian Syrian captivity. The the notion that the early Old Testament, i.e., the Pentateuch, was written during the uh, Babylonian and Syrian captivity is very thin. It's it's major. It's incredibly speculative. That's why you've got to ask for okay. Give me the evidence that you that you believe this happened. Okay, and a lot of times what you'll find is the evidence is 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 enormously speculative. Like this whole notion that the that the Pentateuch was written during the the Babylonian and Syrian captivity, very very thin. If you were investigating a murder or something like that, and you were you were going on this evidence, you wouldn't have much to go on. Um, it's it's really only based. It, here's the thing I, that I that I found astonishing, especially as I studied at Claremont, is that um, you would make these grand claims like. The Pentateuch was written during the Babylonian captivity or the Syrian captivity, um, and and they say, and here's how we know this, and then and, you, and they give you the evidence, and you go, um, that's how we know that. That sounds pretty thin to me. Um, really, in all honesty, it's only based on the notion that certain learned Jews wrote these things to help them get through the captivity. That's all. That that is the only reason why scholars believe that the Pentateuch and 
several of the books of the uh, of the Old Testament were written during these captivities was because scholars speculate that you know certain learned Jews wrote these things to help Jews get through these captivities. That's that's what they say, right? And if you if you begin with the presupposition that this is all myth, that none of this is history, then you have to come up with some sort of motivation and reason why uh, these books were written and when they were written. Okay, you, it, there's just no other real way to date these things. And <coughs> pardon me. Ooh, good gracious. Um. Dawkins doesn't give any of those things. So there's plenty of evidence thing. Always look behind that. Show me the plenty of evidence that these things were written much later than they have been historically reported to be written. All right, let's move on here. Most of the apparent history in the Old Testament was written much more recently, between 600 and 500 BC, many centuries after the events they purport to describe. We get clues to when the Old Testament was actually written from anachronisms in the text. An anachronism is something that crops up in the wrong time, say when an actor in a costume drama about ancient Rome forgets to take his wristwatch off. Well, here's a nice anachronism in the book of Genesis. Genesis says Abraham owned camels, but archaeological evidence shows that the camel was not domesticated until many centuries after Abraham is supposed to have died. Camels had, though, been domesticated by the time of the captivity in Babylon, which is when the book of Genesis was actually written. All right, so this is... <laughs> um, I think I have yet to catch Dawkins in an out-and-out -out lie, but this, this is an out-and-out -out lie. Here we go. From Wikipedia, and um, I checked on this because I thought, well... Wikipedia can be wrong. We can't always trust trust Wikipedia, but I kind of did the some background research on Wikipedia. Dawkins made me do background research on Wikipedia because we're talking about the domestication of camels. All right. Humans may have first domesticated camels in Somalia and southern Arabia around 3000 BC. Uh, by the way, that's the precise area <clears throat> that Abraham would have been in in that time. And Bactrian camels in Central Asia around 2500 BC. And the, the person who made this Wikipedia post, whoever's interested in the domestication of camels, <laughs> uh, is really committed to the project because he cited five sources for this. Uh, he says, Martin Hyde's 2010 work on the domestication of the camel tentatively concludes that humans had domesticated the Bactrian camel by at least the middle of the third millennium, 3000 BC. Uh, I think that's right. 4,000 BC. Yeah, 4,000, 3,000 BC. Somewhere in the east of the Zagros Mountains uh, with the practice then moving into Mesopotamia. Hyde suggests that the uh, mention of camels in, in patriarchal narratives, um, i.e. the Bible, may refer at least in some places to the back trained camel. Um, so, like I said before, the Wikipedia page cites no less than five credible sources for experts who uh, know about the domestication of camels. So this is just, um, I don't know where Dawkins is getting this, if he's just making this up and flying by the seat of his pants. I don't know what his editors are doing with his, with the fact checking, but because this is, this is one of those books where, you know, editors have to do fact checking. This is just a complete lie. Camels were domesticated in plenty of time. It, was, it is not anachronistic for the Bible uh, to, to cite domesticated camels um, in the in the time that Abraham was 
has been traditionally reported to have lived. Okay, it's just an out and out lie. Now, I doubt the teenagers that Dawkins is targeting will even bother to do a Google search on this and check out and see, well, let's do a fact check here and see if Dawkins is really telling the truth. So let me just tell you, he's lying here. This is He's lying or he's ignorant. Okay, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he's ignorant. He heard this from somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about. He didn't do very good research on this. He didn't do a Google search on it. And check out uh, whether or not the, the you know the camel was domesticated at, at this point in time. Um, you know, skeptics often sound convincing, but doing one simple fact check. Well, I mean, I have been astonished at this. This this is what just blew my mind at Claremont and was so frustrating was because they would make these grand sweeping statements like camels weren't domesticated until this time. Um, and therefore, Abraham could not, I mean, this is anachronistic, so therefore, Abraham could not have lived when the Bible purports him to have lived, and so therefore, the Bible is false and not historical, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you just do a tiny bit of research, um, this all unravels. It all falls apart, see? Um, it's, it's astonishing. Um, it's, <laughs> what's furthermore uh, astonishing is that, is that camels... Is bringing is 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 bringing Dawkins' whole argument down before he even begins, just with a tiny bit of research. So, lesson learned here: do a little, when somebody makes these grand claims to you, do a little bit of research, and a lot of times you'll find that a the uh, plenty of evidence or the the grand claim itself is just it's just not there. It's 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 an apparition. It's what they wish was there. It's what they hope to be there, but it's just simply not there. All right, let's keep going. Story comes directly from a Babylonian myth, the legend of Utnapishtim, which isn't surprising since Genesis was written during the Babylonian captivity. The Utnapishtim story, in turn, comes from the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh, arguably the world's oldest work of literature. It was written 2,000 years earlier than the Noah story. The Sumerians were polytheists. Their flood legend says the gods couldn't get to sleep because humans made so much noise. Fed up with the racket, the gods decided to drown everybody in a great flood. But one of the gods, the water god Enki, took pity on a man called Utnapishtim, Ziyasudra in an older version, and warned him to build a huge boat to be called the Preserver of Life. The rest of the story is pretty much the same as the Noah version. Animals of every kind taken on board, a dove, a swallow and a raven, released from the ark to see if there was any land coming up, and so on including the spectacular rainbow finish. It was another god, Ishtar, who put up the rainbow as a sign that there would be no more catastrophic floods. Greek mythology has a related story. Zeus, the king of the gods, furiously decided to put an end to humankind. He flooded the world and drowned everybody. Everybody, that is, except one couple, Deucalion and his wife Pyrrha. They survived in a floating chest which eventually came to rest on Mount Parnassus. All around the world there are similar myths of a great flood in which only one family survived. In the Aztec legend from ancient Mexico, the sole survivors, Coxcox and his wife, floated in a hollow tree trunk and finally, like Noah, landed on a mountain top and descended to repopulate the world. In blissful ignorance of the story's polytheistic roots in Babylon, Bible-believing Christians in Kentucky raised the tax-free money to build a gigantic wooden Noah's Ark which people pay to visit. You'd think they might have given a bit more thought to the story. If the tale of Noah were true, the places where we find each kind of animal 
should show a pattern of spreading out from the spot where the biblical ark finally came to rest when the flood subsided, Mount Ararat in Turkey. Instead, what we actually see is that each continent and island has its own unique animals, marsupials in Australia, South America and New Guinea, anteaters and sloths in South America, lemurs in Madagascar. All right, so let's uh, <clears throat> talk about anachronistic. Who stole from who? D Dawkins doesn't give us a chain of evidence on who had the goods on the flood account. He just doesn't. He he talks about how, well, you've got all these similar flood stories, and, and we know we have plenty of evidence that Genesis was written during the Babylonian captivity. No, we don't. You don't have a shred of evidence for that. You have rank speculation. That's all you have. Well, the Jews wanted to have a, a, a grand story like everybody else. So, they, so in captivity, they had a few learned people write this story down. That's what you have. You have a lie based on camels being domesticated. So far, it's not going really well for Dawkins at all here. I mean, these are just, this is just detail stuff. I mean, forget about the, the big stuff that we might get to in some later podcasts. But showing how Dawkins misses these details, um, pretty much, you, you, you know, if you knew anything about anything, you just throw this book down and go, yeah, yeah, I see your agenda. I appreciate it, you know. Um, it's, it's just like any other, any other uh, Christian who wants to convince people of Christianity without, you know, really rigorously studying the evidence. That's, that's exactly, Dawkins is engaging in the same thing. I mean, he's a fundamentalist of another sort. Is, is essentially what's going on here. So Dawkins provides no real chain of evidence to show that the flood story was didn't originate in Genesis. He can't he can't evidentially or he didn't evidentially demonstrate that Genesis was written in uh, the the mid first century BC. And so therefore he cannot say that these other flood stories weren't copied. I and mean, he's talking about um, Zeus and those flood stories. Yeah, perhaps this circulated and people thought, oh, that's a pretty good story that we'll, that we'll put into Armis, we'll incorporate into Armis. See, that's what you find throughout history is that pagan cultures tend to incorporate Christian, uh, Christian historical accounts into their mythology. That's what you find, <clears throat> not the other way around. He's got zero evidence that the Old Testament copied flood myths rather than the other way around. That's what we find most often, is that uh, pagan religions copy from Christianity and mythologize uh, the histories written there because uh, they want to be, they want to have as powerful a story. They're, they're competing with Christianity or, or Judaism, just like anybody else. And most of the time we find, well, all the time, I would say. I can't think of a time when Christianity has copied anything from any pagan religion just doesn't happen. Um, and incidentally, how did all those animals spread out and find their places in the world? Well, I'd suspect in the same way evolutionists like Dawkins speculated, uh, they spread out and found their places when they evolved from, you know, from the primordial soup. That's a ridiculous thing to say. Um, that, that statement didn't even give me pause. I was kind of like, um, well, if you're talking about the primordial soup, Dawkins, Richard, my friend, I mean, at some point, some 
organism had to emerge and then they all spread out throughout the world. Well, what's the difference between that and when Noah's Ark landed and they all spread out from there? There's really no no difference. I don't really see how that's even a, a point. Uh, and Dawkins is kind of all over the place in this clip anyway. So let's see if we can get something more substantial here. But they aren't history. Unfortunately, many uneducated people, especially in America and the Islamic world, think they are. All peoples have myths. The two I've just been talking about are Jewish myths, which have become extremely well-known throughout the world, simply because they happen to be gathered into the sacred canons of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It's seldom clear how an ancient myth got started. Perhaps there was an original story about something that did actually happen, say a daring deed by some local hero like Achilles or Robin Hood. Maybe an imaginative storyteller entertained people round the campfire with a yarn which might have been either a garbled version of something that once happened or a piece of fiction made up just for fun, perhaps like the tale of Sinbad the Sailor. Such a storyteller might make use of characters from earlier myths that would have been already known to his audience, figures like Hercules, Achilles, Apollo, Theseus, or coming up to our own time like Br'er Rabbit or Superman or Spider-Man. What's more, the storyteller might not have thought of his stories as pure fiction for entertainment. He might have intended them as moral tales, like Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, or like Aesop's fables. Myths often have a dreamlike quality, and sometimes the original inventor of the story may have been recounting a dream. Throughout history, lots of people have believed their dreams were filled with meaning. Dreams have been thought to foretell the future. Australian Aborigines trace their mythology from a mysterious dawn age in the ancestral past, which they call the dream time. However a story starts, whether in truth or fiction, parable or dream, the Chinese whispers effect will see to it, it changes as it's repeated and re-repeated down the generations. Noble deeds become exaggerated, eventually often to superhuman levels. Sometimes the names get altered, as when the Utnapishtim character in the Sumerian legend became the Noah character in the Hebrew retelling. All kinds of details change. Successive storytellers improve the story, changing details to make it funnier, or to make it fit with their previous beliefs or wishful thinking or simply to make events in the story more typical of an already well-loved character. So, by the time the story is finally written down, little of the original survives. It's become a myth. The development of a myth can be very rapid, as we know from those fascinating cases that have started in our own time, so that we've actually been able to watch their birth and development. There are many myths about Elvis Presley being seen alive, which might make you think twice about the similar stories of Jesus' resurrection. My favourite example of a modern myth is the cargo cults of New Guinea and various Melanesian islands in the Pacific. During the Second World War, many islands were occupied by Japanese, American, British or Australian troops. These military outposts were richly supplied with goods, food, fridges, radios, telephones, cars and so on. Something similar had been going on since the 19th century with supplies brought in for colonial administrators, missionaries and so on. But the scale of the wartime deliveries especially dazzled the islanders. No foreigner was ever seen growing crops or making cars or fridges or doing almost anything useful. And yet those wonderful things kept arriving, dropping out of the sky, literally out of the sky during the war, because they came in big cargo planes. 
It seemed obvious to the islanders that all that lovely cargo must come from the gods or from the ancestors who were worshipped as gods. And since the invaders never did any useful work to get stuff, the things they did do must be religious ceremonies. They must be designed to please the cargo gods and persuade them to rain yet more cargo down from heaven. So the islanders tried to imitate these ceremonies, thinking this would please the cargo gods. How did they do that? Well, it was clear that the airport must be some kind of sacred holy place, because that's where the cargo planes homed in. So the islanders decided to make their own airport in a forest clearing, complete with dummy control tower, dummy radio masts, and dummy planes on the dummy runway. After the war, when the military outposts had departed and the cargo stopped arriving from the sky, the islanders hoped for a second coming. They redoubled their efforts to please the cargo gods and bring back the lost but remembered age of glorious plenty. Cargo cults sprang up dozens of times independently on lots of islands widely separated from each other. Some of them are still going strong. On the island of Tanna, Vanuatu, the related cult of John Frum still exists. John Frum is a mythical, messiah-like figure who, the islanders believe, will one day return to take care of his people, like Jesus, an American soldier known as John Frum America. In American English, from sounds like from, rhyming with come. Another version of the cult worships Tom Navy. In each case, the name may be grafted onto a personality derived from an older, tribal god, just as when Utnapishtim became Noah. Yet another cult, also on Tanna, worships Prince Philip as a god. Not exactly cargo in this case, but a tall, handsome naval officer who must have looked pretty dazzling in his white uniform and sufficiently godlike to be cheered by crowds wherever he went. That seems to have kick-started the Chinese whispers process. The Prince Philip myth has grown ever since 1974 when he visited the island, and some inhabitants are still, in 2018, looking forward to his second coming. These modern religious cults give us a good idea of how easily myths can arise. Perhaps you've seen Monty Python's film Life of Brian. The hero Brian is, unfortunately, mistaken for the Messiah. Running frantically away from the adoring crowds, he drops a gourd and also loses one of his sandals. Almost immediately there is a schism, with the worshippers splitting into two rival groups. One group follows the sacred sandal, the other group the sacred gourd. Okay. See, this is where you start to... Um, you should start to wonder about Dawkins. You've got a, a equivocation of Christianity and the cargo cults um, to Life of Brian. Monty Python. Um, look, you know, even when I wasn't a believer and I was studying these things, we, we took this stuff a lot more seriously than Dawkins is taking it. This is, I mean, this is what turned me off to the new atheism. Um, you're not talking about a, a cargo cult. You're not talking about something like Life of Brian. You're talking about an, something happened in the first century AD that spawned a worldwide religion which dominates the planet at this point. And for you to equivocate that to something like the cargo cults, or Monty Python, 
you're not taking the material seriously. See, this is one thing I appreciate about Bart Ehrman. At least he takes the material seriously. Dawkins does not. Um, there are no, there are no adherents to John Frum and the cargo cults who have advanced degrees, who are who are setting up colleges and seminaries to to study this. I mean, this 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 is the straw man, and and this is the biggest one. Um, that some scholars try to perpetrate in order to make Christianity look like it's just completely ridiculous, like it's a Monty Python film. And that, and when Dawkins, if that's the seriousness with which Dawkins is taking Christianity, it's nothing but a Monty Python film, he's not even worth considering. Even if you're not a believer, if you want both sides of the story, Dawkins is not the man to go to. And yet... He's geared this book towards teenagers who don't tend to question a whole lot. This is why I teach my teenagers about what's out there in my Bible class. What, what people are going to try to do to dissuade them from being Christians. They're going to do nonsense like compare the Christian religion to a Monty Python film. That is utterly, utterly ridiculous and insulting. That just demonstrates the fact that Dawkins doesn't have any time to actually study the scholarship, the history, and take it seriously and make a, a cogent argument against it. He's just going to straw man it and pretend like, eh, why would you even consider these things? Um, that's not convincing to me. Never has been. Even when I was not a believer and I was looking to become an atheist. Richard Dawkins was the one who convinced me not to become an atheist because when I looked at his arguments, I'm like, this is no better than Christian fundamentalism. They don't provide any evidence. They don't take the other side's arguments seriously. And that's not what I'm looking for. That's not what I'm looking for at all. All right, let's move on. So is the story of Noah. And the very same people think the scriptures are our best guide on how to be good. All these devout people think God himself is a supremely good role model. Here's another story, a very upsetting one, also about God testing somebody to see whether he really loved God. Imagine that, when you were a child, your father woke you one morning and said, It's a fine day, how would you like to come with me for a walk in the country? You might quite fancy the idea. So off you go for a nice day together. After a while, your father stops to gather wood. He piles it up and you help him because you enjoy bonfires. But now, when the bonfire is ready to light, something terrible happens. Utterly unexpected. Your father seizes you, throws you on top of the pile of wood, and ties you down so you can't move. You scream with horror. Is he going to roast you on top of the bonfire? It gets worse. Your father produces a knife, raises it above his head, and you are now in no doubt your father is about to run his knife through you. He's going to kill you, and then set fire to your body. Your own father, the father who told you bedtime stories when you were little, told you the names of flowers and birds. Your dear father who gave you presents, comforted you when you were afraid of the dark. How could this be happening? Suddenly he stops. He looks up at the sky with a strange expression on his face, as though carrying on a conversation with himself in his head. He puts away the knife, unties you, and tries to explain what has happened. But you are so paralyzed with horror and fear 
that you can scarcely hear his words. Eventually he makes you understand. It was all God's doing. God had ordered your father to kill you and offer you up as a burnt sacrifice. But it turned out to be just a tease, a test of your father's loyalty to God. Your father had to prove to God that he loved God so much that he was even prepared to kill you if God ordered him to do so. He had to prove to God that he loved God even more than he loved his own dear child. As soon as God saw that your father was really, really prepared to go through with it, God intervened just in time. Gotcha, April fool! I didn't really mean it. Yes, it was a good joke, wasn't it? Is it possible to imagine a worse trick to play on someone? A trick calculated to scar a child for life and poison a father-child relationship forever? But that's exactly what the Bible says God did. Read the whole story in Genesis chapter 22. The father was Abraham. The child was his son, Isaac. All right, let's take Dawkins' advice and read the whole story in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Notice that. I and the boy will worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand uh, he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both went uh, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So notice all the inferences Dawkins puts on this story. He he puts the inference <clears throat> that they're just going out for this walk and have a bonfire. No. Isaac knows what's going on from the beginning. He infers that, that Isaac was terrified and shocked. And there's nothing in the text that would indicate that. In fact, it would indicate that, that that's quite the opposite. Because if you read this whole this account in context you will see that Isaac is probably about 14 or 15 years old by this time 
There's no, there's no t- Isaac being terrified and shocked that Abraham would do this. It inf- uh, Dawkins infers that Abraham and Isaac's relationship was irreparably damaged, and there's nothing in this text or in all of Genesis to indicate that. It, 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 Dawkins infers that Isaac was against this somehow, and there's nothing in the text to do that. He laid down his life willingly, foreshadowing Christ laying down his life willingly. I mean, this, this is most likely something that Isaac would have suspected would have happened. He would have said, you know, I'm the firstborn. The way people act around here, the way, the way things are, our culture is that the firstborn gets sacrificed. That's just how it is. And one day my father's going to take me out and sacrifice me. And if I'm loyal to God, then I will go along with this. That's more than likely what happened. The surprise here is that is that the child wasn't sacrificed. That's the surprise. It would it would have been completely in keeping with those times that <clears throat> that Isaac would have been sacrificed. Completely in keeping with those times. That's the surprise here. Dawkins also infers that God spoke secretly to Abraham. It says that nowhere in the text. I mean, for what we know from the text, Isaac heard God's voice as well. A voice called from heaven. That's what verse 11 says. A voice called from heaven. See, Dawkins, as much as he wants to appeal to reason, he's actually appealing to a postmodern reading of this text. He's deconstructing this in order to support his narrative. Recall how to deconstruct a text. Right, you find the binary opposites. You identify the privileged binary, identify the the uh, oppressed binary, invert the binaries, dissolve the binaries to deconstruct the text. Well, this is what Dawkins does with it to show how horrifically immoral the Bible is. He identifies God and Abraham as the as the privileged binaries and Isaac as the oppressed. Instead of instead of, instead of having the text showcase Abraham's faith. And God's merciful nature, as compared to the other local gods of the region, Dawkins flips the script here. Instead of having God institute animal sacrifice and forbid child sacrifice, in in contrast to the norms of the day, Dawkins uses modern standards on this and says, see, the Bible is a horrible place to look for morality. That's what's going on here. And he gives several other, other examples just like this. He deconstructs these texts. And makes it look like what the Bible is trying to say is worship this horrible, evil God that does these things, these horrible, evil things to people. And if you're some teenager reading this book, you might be saying to yourself, oh, wow, I never really thought of the Bible stories that way. That's that's a really unique way to look at it. Of course, you've never consider the Bible stories this way because that's not what they're intended to teach. You've always taken them in, in a way that says, okay, what is the author trying to teach me in this situation? You've never taken them as somebody coming along, deconstructing them and using them for their own agenda. You've never experienced that. <laughs> and so so it is something that's difficult to resist. And instead of saying, uh, no, I don't, I don't think that's what the authors meant to put across here. 
Uh, but Dawkins is very, very convincing, and so uh, you might buy into it. Uh, it doesn't matter, though. Dawkins is going to just le- overlay whatever he wants the author to mean in this text. Like a good postmodern, he deconstructs the text to fit his own narrative. And I'm not sure Dawkins himself even realizes what he's doing in a lot of ways. He is full-on buying this, and um, that's what's going on here. Okay, let's see if we can get a couple more in here. Both these stories, God testing Abraham and God testing Job, I can't help feeling that the God character is not only cruel, but, well, insecure. It's as though God is like a jealous wife in a novel, who's so uncertain of her husband's fidelity that she deliberately tries to trap him in unfaithfulness, persuades an attractive woman friend perhaps to tempt him, just to prove to herself that he'll remain loyal to her. And if God is supposed to know everything, you might think he'd know in advance how Abraham would behave when put to the test. In the Bible, the God character often describes himself as jealous. At one point he even says his name is jealous. But where ordinary people are jealous of romantic rivals or business competitors, God is jealous of rival gods. Sometimes with good reason. As we saw in chapter 1, the early Hebrews were not wholly monotheistic in the modern sense. They were loyal to Yahweh as their tribal god, but that didn't mean they doubted the existence of rival tribes' gods. They just thought their Yahweh was more powerful and more deserving of their support and sometimes they were tempted to worship other gods with terrifying results if their own god caught them at it. All right, so... Why does God test faith, and why is God jealous? That's that's the problem Dawkins has here. Because in our day and time, jealousy is a bad thing. All right, let's watch through this. Um, God tests faith... Not for his own sake, but for ours. I mean, God knows if we're going to pass the test or not. He knows. If we pass, we're encouraged and our faith is strengthened, just like Abraham with Isaac. If we fail, God uses our fail to discipline and teach us and use it for our good, just like St. Paul teaches us in Romans, and our faith is strengthened. This is why God tests our faith. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you are confronted with trials of many kinds, St. James teaches us. Because when our faith is tested, it's for our benefit. It's not for God's benefit. You know, if if Dawkins had talked to a Christian maybe about this and say, why does God test faith? You know, does he, you know, he needs to be assured somehow that people's faith is... And a Christian, any normal Christian who knows anything would have said, God doesn't test our faith for his own benefit. He tests our faith for our benefit. And he would have said just what I said there. Anyway, either way, our faith is strengthened. So now, why is God jealous? Uh, My question to Dawkins on this point, and again, I would love to debate these guys. And that's the thing is, that's why they don't debate a lot of times. I mean, you go, I mean, Christopher Hitchens debated a lot. And he was probably the most fun to watch. Uh, but at the same time, most of the time, Christopher Hitchens got trashed. He just did. Um, the best he could come up with was ad hominem, ad hominem attacks laced with all kind of value-laden language, which he couldn't support. And when people called him out on that, he just, you know, he was he was the most flamboyant of them. And, right. But, but uh, Sam Harris does not debate Christians very often. He debated William Lane Craig and got his hind parts handed to him and you don't see much else other than that um but i would love to debate uh richard dawkins because the, here's the question i would ask to dawkins on this whole jealousy issue i would say um 
wouldn't you be jealous if your wife was sleeping around with another man? And if and if he said no, then I would just say, well, then you don't really love your wife. Plain and simple. If he said yes, then I'd be like, um, so what's your problem with God being just? See, he just entrapped himself. He's just completely painted himself into a corner. Because if you love someone and they're they're being unfaithful to you, that should upset you. That should make you jealous. That's exactly what the scriptures are talking about. The same thing is true with God. If you if you love someone and you're not angry or jealous when that person is unfaithful to you, you don't really love that person. Dawkins doesn't know the difference between being jealous, having someone else uh, <clears throat> who has a spouse, <clears throat> and someone else coming along trying to take that spouse uh, versus covetousness, which is somebody who's trying to take somebody else's spouse. Okay, that's that's covetousness. See, Israel was God's people. We're described in the New Testament as the bride of Christ. And when we're unfaithful, God loves us. He should be jealous. Right? Um, Dawkins doesn't have a clue on this issue. Um, He doesn't know what it means in the ancient Near East to go after other gods. What it means to go after other gods is the best analogy I could give you is to be like the Nazis. Going after other gods is like being like Nazis, being barbaric, ancient, unlearned, uneducated people. It's, it's, it's on par with the Nazis. So imagine a bunch of Nazis running around. The only group of people that aren't Nazis are the Jews. Ironic, right? So going after other gods, you see, that's, that's the thing you got to get your mind around is in, in the ancient Near East, going after other gods isn't just, you know, oh, I'm, we're going to go, you know, worship this other deity and we're all going to live nice and tranquil lives. No, going after other gods meant you adopted an ideology and a worldview just like it does today. Doesn't mean anything more or anything less. Dawkins is quick to condemn Islamicism, which I would stand arm in arm with them on and say that is going after other gods where it is perfectly within that religion's right to destroy and kill people with gigantic commercial airliners. That's what it means to go after other gods today. That's what it means to go after other gods in the Old Testament. Dawkins doesn't get that. He has no clue about that. So, at any rate, let me give one last illustration here, and um, we'll cover. We'll, we'll keep covering this because I think uh, we need to keep picking this apart. But imagine this: um, I like that movie *Inglorious Bastards*. Now, it's it's rated R. Wouldn't recommend it for the for the children. But what's interesting about it is, if you didn't know what the Nazis were about in that film, you wouldn't. I mean, if you had no. If you just wipe your mind clean of all history and you didn't know what the Nazis were about, you would wonder why these people were going around terrorizing these poor Nazis and beating them with baseball bats and blowing up their movies and et cetera, et cetera. Why are they so, why do they hate these Nazis so much? See, if you didn't know any better, you would think, you know, that these people going around torturing and killing Nazis are really the bad guys, maybe. <clears throat> That's kind of what happens to the Old Testament, I think, is we don't realize um, what going after other gods means. 
and we think, oh, well, because God commands and is jealous uh, of, of going after other gods and says not to, and in fact takes physical military action to eradicate those who worship other gods, well, he just must be this terrible, evil god uh, that is jealous and, and uh, just wants to wipe everybody else off the face of the earth who doesn't worship him. No, that's not what's going on at all. Um, God acts righteously. And um, to go after other gods, like we said before, is something a lot more than what Dawkins is putting forth here. Okay, so we're going to leave it off there. I've got more of this um, to go for sure. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep picking through it because it's just so much fun to to just trash Dawkins here. He's awful. Uh, anybody that would listen to him with any amount of seriousness, that's maybe why he's going after teenagers. He's just not having a lot of success convincing any adults that this is this is serious stuff. I don't know. It's just it's just terrible and bad, and just doesn't uh, put together any cogent arguments. But it's 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 uh, it's it's good for us to go over this because this is going to help us to to um, to strengthen our faith against this sort of thing and and to understand that really. There's no argument here. Okay. Anyway, thanks again for listening. Um, thank you for everyone on KNNA, The Cross in Nebraska. Uh, thank you to Steve Kozar and TheMessedUpChurch.com for having us. Please go to laymanstermsradio.org and donate to the Kenny Well Project. We'll see you next week.